All right, welcome, men. <clears throat> We've been in a um, study of the character of God just to kind of look at what it's like to think our way through um, who God is when we're in the trenches of life. That's why we called it your view of God in the trenches. Today, we're going to begin with the things that God cannot do. We've talked about his supremacy and his sovereignty. We've talked about the uh, incomprehensible knowledge God has, even his omnipotence, his supreme power. But we want to declare right up front that there are certain things that God has revealed that he cannot do. For example, he cannot renounce himself. He cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. God cannot deny himself. That is to say, he can't go against himself, who he is. Titus 1 verse 2, a very familiar text, says, this is our God who cannot lie. He cannot lie. James 1.13 says that he can't be tempted by evil. God cannot renounce himself. He cannot lie. He cannot be tempted by evil. And in Numbers 23, God says that he is not a man that he should lie or repent. God is not a man that he should repent. It is a Hebrew term that literally means to look back and regret as if your will were somehow imperfect. So when it's used, when Naham is used in reference to God, he cannot regret his perfect and ultimate will. In that sense, that's something he cannot do. His will is ultimate and perfect. It is infinite and therefore it is immutable, unchangeable in that sense. So he cannot repent like a man has to repent because we have an imperfect understanding and an imperfect set of choices and we have to look back on them with regret. <clears throat> it's also true that God cannot break an oath. He cannot break a promise. He cannot be unfaithful. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and we'll begin there. God cannot break an oath, which is to say he cannot be unfaithful to what he has promised. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant. Faithful. It's the Hebrew word for firmly settled. He's a firmly settled God. In other words, it's, it's the undergirding of who he is. If 
if you have anything to do with the promises of God, they are undergirded by who he is. He is a man. He's firmly settled. He's undergirding. He's enduring would be another way to say it, or we might say trustworthy. And notice, he keeps his covenant and his loving kindness. Keeps, that, that's the, the term for he watches over it in order to preserve it. It's the word for preserve. So there, there's a watchfulness to preserve to permanence. There's a careful attendance, we might say. He keeps, shamar, guardianship, diligent safeguarding. So he's an undergirding, trustworthy God who watches over with careful attendance everything he has said and promised in order to preserve it utterly. What is he keeping in this context? He's keeping his oath, his promise. The word for treaty, his, his agreement, what he has said he will do. And then, of course, his loving kindness. He preserves his loving kindness, which is that great Old Testament word for devotion or loyal devotion. We, we could say unchanging or undying, unfading Love and devotion, loyal love, sometimes translated faithfulness. So here you have in Deuteronomy 7, 9, the description of our God. He is God, the faithful God, the undergirding, trustworthy God, watching over with careful guardianship to utterly preserve the treaty, the, the oath, the promise that he has given and he does so because of his loyal devotion, his unchanging, faithful love. In his classic work on the character of God, as I've referenced already numerous times, A.W. Tozer in his work on the knowledge of the holy said this, Upon God's faithfulness rests our entire hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. It's true. You know, if you, if you are going to place your hope in something and it's going to be a hope that not only realizes what has been promised in the practical realm, but also the length of it, it will be for all eternity and never be taken off the table. If you're going to place your hope in something like that, it can't be, it can't depend upon anything within us or about us. If it's eternal and we're finite, then how could you ever know it, bring it to pass, realize it, secure it, keep it, safeguard it, hold on to it for all eternity? The moment a promise is made that in which we place that kind of eternal hope, it has to be made by someone who cannot be removed from that promise, who cannot fail that promise, a God who cannot be unfaithful. Tozer goes on to say, only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, I love this, may we live in peace. In a world of turmoil, we will live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. So, 
Tozer will mention things like when you're tempted or you're anxious or you're fearful or you're discouraged. Those kinds of experiences that we do have as infirmed, fallen creatures, we can only find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that he's faithful. You're not going to find that kind of cheer and new hope in changed circumstances or, or uh, un, you know, completely settled anxiety. No, there are times when life is fearful and comes upon us and rushes upon us and the unknowns are there and the uncertainties are there in the finite sort of horizontal way life comes at us. But, but new hope and good cheer comes in the knowledge that God will be ever true, Tozer says, to what he has pledged. I love that. The reason this has import for us because of how discouragement comes upon us, you just start to think of the way that, that discouragement develops in a man's life, in the burdens of his life. And this starts to really become crucial for us. First of all, our labors. I mean, we were just talking about it, you know, earlier. Brent and I just, it just, you, you constantly do this. You're in a burden in life. You're always toiling. It's physical, it's mental, it's emotional, and we're weary human beings. The pressure of providing for needs and protecting what is your stewardship the common graces that normally relieve and, and settle us are few and far between. No, nothing ever really fully brings the kind of satisfying rest because you get up from whatever little rest you get and you're back at it and the burdens are still there and the pressure is still there. And then tribulation comes. You've got natural evil in the world, unsettledness, physical infirmities. Then you've got uh, things that are evil in the world. So you've got disease and disaster and death on the one hand. You've got uncertain times and fearful situations and just the relentless decline of culture into sinfulness that's frightening and torments our conscience as it did uh, Lot when he was camped out near Sodom personal heartache, which comes from our deep sorrows and inward griefs and scars from a painful past. And then you add to our labors and tribulation, sin. Just the battle with guilt and broken relationships and scars from idolatries, daily failures. And then the barrage of temptation from the world, the flesh, and Satan can get pretty discouraged and you need consolation in those times. John Owen said this consolation comes from the assurance of faith and our help from God's promises. We used to say it this way when we would preach on these things. We don't need explanations. We need God's promises reiterated. That's what we need. That's, John Owen says, what relieves our souls of all fears, doubts, and troubles. Because, he says, it either prevents them or is stronger than them. That's so true. It either prevents your fears, doubts, and troubles or is stronger than, than them. Look at Psalm 89, verse 8. 
going to make our way through a couple of very key passages that are super helpful. Psalm 89, verse 8. Pages are stuck together here. Notice, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. This terminology should not be missed. Your faithfulness encircles. We might use the word envelops. Or if we were to sort of expand the translation, your faithfulness is your permeating environment. You couldn't be anything other than faithful because you cannot be unfaithful and your faithfulness is the encircling environment. It is your environment. It's your context. It's like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 11 verse 5 that faithfulness is the belt about God's waist. It's the core of who he is. It's at the core. And it spans the universe, top to bottom, uh, side to side, Psalm 36, 5. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And then Lamentations chapter 3, which is, of course, such a familiar, such a familiar passage to us because it says there his faithfulness is great. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, Yahweh's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. So never cease, never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the same term that was used in the Isaiah 11:5 reference, the Psalm 36:5 reference. It is this same term often translated faithfulness in the Old Testament, emunah, and, and it's the word for permanence, steady permanence. Again, trustworthiness comes to mind. And again, faithfulness and immutability go together. If he's faithful and cannot be unfaithful, then that is a reflection of his unchangeableness. He doesn't change. And so his faithfulness is, is intricate to his immutability, and his immutability can result in nothing other than his faithfulness. Permanent steadiness, emunah. Great is your permanent steadiness. Now, I want to look at a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, that, that really lays this forth in a very, very helpful way. We're going to look at two passages in Hebrews. First of all, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Notice the very familiar section, but he says here in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Here is the concept of our hope. We are not to waver in it. We are to hold it fast or possess it as our own, clutch it. So we could say that as the writer begins here in verse 23, he's saying, look, fully embrace this confession in a way that 
changes everything in your life. And believe it so that it influences how you think and how you live. Possess it that way. Cling to it so that nothing separates you from it. Nothing threatens to separate. That's the holding on to this confession. Don't, don't believe it in vain would be a way to say it. Just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Don't hold the confession in vain. Fully embrace it. Believe it. Cling to it. A genuine belief that isn't empty talk. Then he says, hold fast the confession. If you go back to verse 19 and follow it through verse 21, if you, if you go to verse 19 and follow it through verse 21, you have the blood of Christ, which makes us bold, verse 19. If you see in verse 20 that the body of Christ made the way, that is his flesh, so he's the sin bearer, which we've studied extensively before. And then our belonging then because of this, verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. So his, the blood of Christ makes us boldly come before the throne. The way was paved by the sacrifice of Christ offered before the throne. And that benevolence from Christ means we belong. So we're part of the family. That's our confession. It is the confession, he says, the writer does, of our hope. The confession of our hope. So when it comes to how faithfulness affects the believer's life, it is to be the ground of our hope. God cannot be unfaithful. He cannot change in his steady, his steady trustworthiness. He must keep his promises. He cannot go back on his promises. And upon that reality rests our hope. What difference is it supposed to make in your life? You're to take courage in it. Psalm 31, 24. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all of you who hope in Yahweh. Courage. Courage. Be strong in that reality. And depend upon God's answer in prayer. I hope in you, Psalm 38, 15, O Yahweh, you will answer. You will. So my prayers are grounded in the faithfulness of God. Therefore, I hope when I talk to God. And you know it from Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in despair? O my soul, hope in God why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence. There's this idea that he's always helping. His presence is always there. I can put my hope in his character. Don't despair. So take courage. Know that he's listening to your needs. Don't despair. There's a waiting of your soul before God because of hope. Psalm 62, 5. My soul wait in silence for God only. Right, you don't put your hope in some change in circumstances. You don't put your hope in some earthly settlement or security here. You just wait on God. You put your hope in God, that means you wait. You wait for whatever his will does to unfold because he cannot go against his word. He cannot be unfaithful. 
to his promises. But then notice back in this text in Hebrews, then he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Then verse 23, let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering. Don't go side to side with it. It's the opposite of steadiness. Oh, I trust God, I don't. I believe in God, I don't. I, he's faithful, I'm not sure he is. He, he promised, but will he bring it to pass? No, we're, we're to do it without wavering. I'm so thankful that the writer put that there because we sometimes are wavering so often that we put it over here in a category compartmentalized as rightful excuses. Well, I'm only human. I, I can't really be perfect. And while that's true, all that's true, notice that the writer here says, I want you to do it without wavering. Don't go from side to side. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, we have to understand the way that God's faithfulness has been demonstrated in the past with regard to his eternal promise, his eternal covenant. And if you look back to chapter 6, you see how this unfolds in the book of Hebrews in such a marvelous way when it talks about God's faithfulness. I love this. Notice chapter 6. He has just finished warning of apostasy, right? The first several, chap several verses of chapter 6 are, uh, this is the third section in the book of Hebrews. There are five sections that warn of apostasy. This is probably the, the one that's sort of like this core statement about people who've tasted of the divine truth, hearing it, coming underneath it, even though... People of the old covenant have heard all of the promises of God over and over again, and yet they fall away in ruin. They go back to trusting in something other than the work, the superior work of Christ, which is essentially the warning throughout the book of Hebrews. Laced through all of it is the warning that you should not go back to inferior things. Christ is superior. The new covenant is superior. God's work through the blood of the sacrifice is superior to the old things. Don't go back there. I'm warning you that there are some who will go back to that and they cannot, their heart is going to harden. They're not, there's not going to be any place for repentance. So he's just finished warning them about apostasy then he says this wonderful thing in verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. <laughs> I'm sure the reader would have been encouraged by that. Whew. Man, this is a third warning in this letter. He's convinced of better things concerning us and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. Look, I'm warning you because there are some who are going to do that. In the case of some, he says, but things concerning salvation, I have to speak this way. And then verse 10, this is very interesting how he begins to unfold this argument. God is not unjust so as to forget your work. What in the world is he implying here? Well, he's about to tell us that God is faithful. So what he's implying here is that the seeds of apostasy, the seeds of discouragement, the seeds of going against 
trusting in the promises of God occur in our hearts when we think God forgets his work, his character, and, its pro- and what it produces in our life. You want to nurture a thought about God that isn't true of him? Then imagine that he forgets his work in us and the work that you do on his behalf because of the love he put in your, in your heart. God is not unjust. There were literally ways that God's people whom are being written to here were imagining that God somehow has forgotten his promises, this work, and the love which you showed toward his name. People would actually sort of begin to get down on a horizontal level and make human evaluations instead of go back to the promises of God. Hey, I want human explanations for the struggle that I have to go through. If I'm a child of God, why do I have to face these things? That's a horizontal evaluation. You want some human explanation, and that's the seeds of apostasy. Yeah, that's right. Even in believers, you can act like God is not trustworthy. He's somehow unjust. God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. But look at verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. I love that. I want you to have full assurance. I want it to be the abundant assurance of hope all the way to the end. So what are you going to have to do? Stop imagining God is somehow unjust. Stop imagining that he's been unfaithful in some way. And verse 12, so that you will will not be sluggish. Probably uh, the, the reference here is to what he had said at the end of chapter 5, dull of hearing and slow and sluggish in your spiritual life. Spiritually sluggish. I don't want your thoughts to become undiscerning. I don't want you to become elementary in your thinking like he'd warned him at the end of chapter 5. So that you may not be spiritually sluggish, but imitators of those who through, look at this, Faith and patience inherit the promises. Look at those words combined. Faith, patience, promises. God has made the promises. We are to believe them and enduringly carry on because of them. Now he's about to explain the faithfulness of God in a way that is dramatic. And it refers back to God's relationship with Abram. Verse 13, here's the explanation. Here's why we ought to have full assurance of hope till the end. For when God made the promise to Abraham, you say, when was that? Genesis 15. He'd referred to it in Genesis 12. He ratified it in Genesis 15 with the formal covenant And there are some elements here about this that are remarkable. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. We we have got to look at this. Go back to Genesis 15 with your finger in Hebrews 6. The account is 
spellbinding. He had already promised Abram that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And now he, in chapter 15 of Genesis, comes to Abram again. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Of course, you know, the promise was made, and, um, and ultimately... Abram would get into the land and 10 years later, still no child of promise. So here is Abram wondering, thinking. He needs a promise from God and he needs a way to understand the faithfulness of God that transcends Abram, that transcends himself. And behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram on the spot with a scant statement about the promise of God's blessing, the promise, the oath, the statement, the treaty. Abram believed God having been given that promise. So he's going to have to count on who God is. And so what does God do having now promised it? Well, notice verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? I love that. He didn't take him to the fringes of the land and work out the war strategy and this nation will fall at this time and this, no specifics. He's going to make the oath and demonstrate something to Abram that's crucial upon which Abram can set his hope for the rest of his life and for eternity. A demonstration. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him. He cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other, at least with the animals. The birds he did not cut in two and chased away the the vultures who were coming to get the carcasses. So he has consecrated the area officially. The birds of, of uh, the turtle dove and the pigeon are there, and the three-year-old heifer and female goat and ram are there cut in two pieces and set opposite one another. The cutting of a covenant was established in that way. If two men made a covenant with one another, they took an animal, and they cut it in half and put the pieces uh, opposite one another, and they walked between the halves. They were essentially saying, I swear upon my life that if I break this oath, you can do this to me. 
I'm coming between the halves of the carcass, cutting an agreement with you, and I'm vowing to keep this oath, or you can know this is what I'm bringing down upon my head. And so it was a very vivid way of sealing an agreement. But here is what happened in the case of Abram. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Know this for certain. Again, God is saying things, declaring his will, giving his counsel, making promises where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. That's a reference to what will come in Egypt before God delivers them at the hands of the great prophet and deliverer Moses. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. You're going you're gonna to plunder Egypt, and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. How? Because I made the promise. Know for certain these things will happen. You're going to go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the antiquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set. It was very dark. Look at this. And behold, so now he's grabbing your attention. So Abram's been given the counsel that this is what's going to happen. He's already been told the child's going to come from your loins, the child of promise. The land will be yours. Your descendants will be uncountable like the stars. And so it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Abram didn't pass between the pieces. He was asleep. This image of a smoking oven and a flaming torch which God created as an image of his very person. He passed between the pieces and verse 18, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he just names all those nations that had peppered the land for generations. They're, they're going to be, that land is, they're gone. This is your land. And from there, the globe will be blessed as your descendants. What's most notable here is that he did not pass between the pieces. Now go back to Hebrews 6. Watch what happens. Verse 13. When God made the promise to Abram, that's the covenant spoken of in verse 18 of Genesis 15. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater. Right, when you cut a covenant with someone, two guys walked through the halves of the animal and they swore to each other by something greater, this demonstration, and people witnessed it and it was written up as a treaty. But God could swear by no one greater. He couldn't pass between the animal halves with Abram because they're not equals. So what did God do? He swore by himself, his own presence, by himself, and his own unilateral treaty. 
And he said this, verse 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. That's language borrowed from the Old Testament, which was translated in the Old Testament in your English Bible, certainly. This will certainly happen. It will most certainly happen. It cannot fail to happen. I promise it. I oath it. And so, verse 15, having patiently waited, so there's that idea of hope that endures, Abraham obtained the promise. Now look at this. So, verse 16 starts to explain why this is absolutely crucial and totally different. Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them, the promise is given as confirmation. So you give the promise to one another, your equals, you cut the animals, you walk through, you make the treaty. We swear by, by a pain of death. We make an oath with one another by, on pain of death because we're equals. And that's admitted here in verse 16. Notice it says, it's given as a confirmation. With them they make an oath, and the oath is given then as a confirmation, and the demonstration threatens them with failing to keep it. And that's the end of every dispute, right? You take it to a court of law. That's what he says the end of verse 16. It's the end of every dispute. If somebody fails it, it goes right into the witnesses who were there and the people who adjudicate such things. Did you not walk through the pieces of the animal? Yes. Did you not make an agreement? Yes. You have failed to keep your contract? Yes. You have to pay with what you agreed upon. Your life. It's admitted here in verse 16, but then look at verse 17. In the same way, God, but here it is, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. I love this. What a great way to say this. In the same way, God desiring even more to show us, we are the heirs of the unchangeableness of his purpose, even desiring more to show that to us, he interposed with an oath so that in order, in order that by two unchangeable things, our hope is secure. You say, well, what are the two unchangeable things here? Because guys have differed on this. Some have said, well, if you read later on and even prior to this in the context is Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection. Well, of course, that ratifies ultimately the covenant. If Christ did not die and did not rise from the dead, we have no ratification of the covenant, of course. But, but is that really specifically what is referred to here when he says two unchangeable things? Two unchangeable things. What are they? Well, one of them leaps clearly off the page in verse 17. The unchangeableness of his purpose. That's the first unchangeable thing. It's his purpose. What is that? It's, it's the word bule. It's, it's counsel, his will, his promise. God's will that he expressed. Abram, this will surely happen. 
This will certainly happen. I will surely do this. When God says his will, when he gives his counsel, when he makes his promise, his immutability makes the promise unchangeable. So that's the first thing. His counsel was given. His word, the word of his promise. ESV says the unchangeable character of his purpose. I like that. And the unchangeable character of his counsel. KJV says the immutability of his counsel. That was sort of the old way of saying it. People today don't know what the word immutable means, but essentially that's why unchangeable was put in the NAS. It's unchangeable. He cannot go back on his boule, his counsel, his promise, his will expressed. So the first unchangeable thing is the word of his promise. It's the promise he gave. What is the second unchangeable thing? Well, notice in verse 17, interposed with an oath. Clearly in this text, the interposing of an oath is the next new thing introduced in the context. That is mentioned nowhere else. Interposed with an oath. You might not find those words very familiar either, but interposed is how we translate this particular Greek verb, and it, it means to mediate something, or we might say to establish a formality, to establish something with a formal way of establishing it. So we might say a tangible way to look back and claim the agreement. So in the same way the two animals were cut and two men walked between it with witnesses, and if one violated it, the rest could say, hey, I saw you walk between the pieces. You made the oath. There was a visible demonstration of it. Same way God did it. He promised to Abram that this would happen, and then he had Abram cut the animals. He put Abram to sleep, and he went between the halves because he can swear by no authority higher than himself. So there was a visible demonstration that God was interposing, mediating this promise with an agreement. It, we might say a promise with a guarantee built in. So when you say oath, you might say, well, yeah, he made a promise. So oath and promise are redundant. Well, actually, in this context, the promise was his word given and the, the interposition of an oath is, is how it gets guaranteed. God made it walked through the pieces, and it is absolutely visibly established on that day. On that day, he made a covenant. So here's how we would say it. The first unchangeable thing is the promise itself. The second unchangeable thing is the formal oath that God unilaterally made when he had Abram cut that half of a three-year-old of a heifer and a goat and a ram sacrificed along with the undissected birds, the turtle dove and the pigeon. So those are the two things. He declared his will, and he swore it by himself with a visible demonstration of how a covenant was cut. You say, why is that crucial? Because of verse 18. Look at verse 18. In which it is impossible for God to lie. <laughs> there it is. If he promised it and he swore it by himself with this visible 
oath guarantee. And it is that he's immutable. He cannot lie and he cannot change. Remember our opening list? He can't renounce himself. He cannot deny himself. Titus 1.2, he cannot lie. He cannot be tempted by evil. James 1.13, he cannot relent. And he cannot be unfaithful to his promise. So when you think about where that confession of hope grounds itself, you notice here in the same text, that is precisely to be the result. Because God showed us those two unchangeable things through which it is impossible for him to lie, then we who have taken refuge, verse 18, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. You take hold of it. His word is unchanging, right? It shall not return to him empty, but will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. Isaiah 55. His word is settled in heaven forever. Psalm 119.89. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24.35, Jesus said. His faithfulness endures forever, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, he says. And in 2 Timothy 2, the trustworthy statement, verse 11 through verse 13, Timothy is told by Paul this very thing. The saying is trustworthy. In other words, you can ground your spiritual eternity your physical eternity, your resurrection, your salvation, and everything that happens from now till then because God watches over it and secures his promise, everything is trustworthy right here. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, there's that faith and patience that Abraham manifested all the way to the end, and he rested in peace. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's right, you can't fall away in apostasy. A true Christian can't do that, but you better be careful of the seeds of apostasy. That's why the warnings are there. The warnings are there not because a true Christian can fall away. The warnings are there by God's sovereign providence to keep you persevering. Did you know that? Warnings in the Bible about leaving, right? First John 2, they went out from us because they weren't not of us. If they had been with us, they would have remained. Uh, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. The, you see passages like that and entire theological systems have tried to say that you could lose your salvation. Look, those warnings are not conditions that are actually possible for the believer. You say, well, then why are they there for the Christian? What Value does a warning of apostasy have for the Christian? God has guaranteed you getting to heaven. He preserves your salvation, but the means by which he preserves it is all of the commands and warnings and encouragements and challenges for you to believe and endure. 
The means by which he preserves is our perseverance. And that's what you see in this text in 2 Timothy 2. If we endure, we'll reign with him. And here's the deal. No matter how many people deny him, no matter how many apostatize, his people can never be denied by him, even if you waver. If we deny him in apostasy, it's over. You will be confirmed and he'll deny you in the end. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He made the promise. His people are, are guaranteed it. It's a certain hope. We are not to be knocked off of our hope, the writer says. This hope we have, verse 19 of Hebrews 6, as an anchor of the soul. It's sure, it's steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He became the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who's that wonderful type of a king with no beginning, a king with no end. He, we don't know where he came from. He has no termination point. He's the priest forever like Melchizedek, the righteous ruler who, who has no beginning and no end. That's that typological figure whom Jesus is likened to as our ultimate high priest. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, then you have a hope that's sure and steadfast, one which entered before a holy God within the veil. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in the covenant. It's demonstrated in the, the two unchangeable things, the promise and the visible oath-making. And Romans 4 says, if you believe of the same kind of faith that Abraham had, you're a child of Abraham. By faith you come. Look, before there was even any law of Moses, before there was even any requirement to be circumcised to show that you were a part of the covenant people as opposed to other nations, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness before there was circumcision, before the law of Moses had been given, before Moses was even around, before the people even went into bondage. Abram believed. If you believe like that, the hope is yours. You're in that same line. And so it's a sure and steadfast hope. And the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness then is not merely the covenant, but the fact that at the proper time, the promised one came, born of a woman, Galatians says, and he died for us and ratified the new covenant, rising from the dead for our resurrection. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of the faithfulness of our God. So now, it's almost like we have a lot to answer for 2,000 years later. So we're several millennia since Abram was first promised and a covenant made with him and he believed God. 
Then the Messiah came and this promise was ratified in Christ. Abram's faith and his death in peace was brought to ultimate fulfillment. And here we are 2,000 years later and we have all of the promise of God in that new covenant and all the specific promises and encouragements given to us like the ones we've been looking at this morning. So it's almost like we have a lot to answer for because Jesus died 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. We've been walking with him. We have the promise of the Spirit. We've been sealed. If we come to the place where we are wondering about the faithfulness of God, when we have passages that say, don't you realize that God is not unjust to somehow forget his people, his work, his covenant, his promise. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's faithful. 1 Corinthians 10 13, he's faithful. He won't allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. He called us. He will bring it to pass. And he'll even strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. He'll strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Why? Because the Lord is faithful, it says. I love that. Sometimes think Satan is getting the... He's getting the drop on the work of God. We've already seen he, he needs permission to do anything. And he knows his time is short, Revelation 12. His day is coming. Of course he's going to antagonize. Of course he's going to afflict. Of course he's going to murder. He's the murderer from the beginning. Of course he's going to lie and deceive. He's, he's the ultimate liar, the father of lies. Of course he's going to come. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And so, back to that reference in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Two unchangeable things. He, he's immutable in his promise. He's immutable in the covenant he specifically made with Abram and the promises he made to him that we would be blessed eternally through him. It was the eternal covenant. And that can't change. The spoken word will be fulfilled. God's truth will be fulfilled. And even those practical, formal ways he ratified that not just the way an animal was cut. We don't do that anymore. We have Christ. Christ is our ultimate fulfillment. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Now being in him, our confession is secure. You say, man, I sin though. So the faithfulness of God is to come to your mind when you sin, right? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. And just, you can't feel forgiveness from God as though your forgiveness was bound up in your sense of it, in your senses of it. Forgiveness just is, 
because God is faithful and just to do it. What is the condition? Penitent, repentant faith, humble faith. I believe you. You're the God who says you forgive. You're the God who has compassion upon a thousand generations. You're the God who forgives a penitent heart. I'm forgiven. And, and I don't want to waver in the knowledge of that because it, my Christian life will start to waver. I'll start to work my way toward his love. I'll start to think that I've lost some of his love. I'll start to think I have to earn back some of his favor to me. Entire works foolishness comes from, is rooted in the doubting of God's faithfulness. I have to get it done. I have to supplement. I have to do it. No, he's faithful and just to forgive. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's right. I am covered in righteousness. I'm called a holy one, a saint. And he is making me conform to the image of Christ in righteousness. Jesus is called our merciful and faithful high priest. When he comes in his glory, Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open, John said, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. It's the faithfulness of God that drives our courage, strengthens and deepens our faith, makes it more steady and unwavering, no matter what's going on around us or the failures that we so often encounter in our own life. He's faithful to keep his promises. His character is that he's faithful. What a marvelous quality that God told us is true of him. He's undergirding. He's trustworthy. He's carefully guarding and diligently keeping watch over the promise, the oath, because of his hesed, his loyal, devoted, faithful love. What a massive encouragement that is to us. So how do we keep from discouragement in this in some practical way that you might be thinking in your, in your mind or in your heart? Let's, um, let's flesh it out a little bit. Matt, you got a microphone there somebody can help us with? Test. Sweet, brother. Anything you want to press into? Add to it? To the discussion? Something you've studied? A question you might have? Don't be shy. This is Grace and Granite. This is the granite part. Derek. In uh, Psalm 37, it, he, the psalmist says to cultivate faithfulness. How can we practically do that, cultivating faithfulness in our own life? That's, you know, on a practical level, it's super important. I remember years ago, I think I've said this to our church before, but, you know, there have been great resources that have been put in print sometimes about the categories that, that you find of topics in Scripture. One of the series was done by Herbert Lockyer 
where he, like, like Meredith, would list passages on certain things. And there's one particular book called All the Promises of the Bible by Herbert Lockyer. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. But I told our congregation that in that volume, somewhere in the introduction, he mentions that if you were to take all of the oaths, the certainties, the promises, the declarations of God, and claim them per day and divide them up, you'd have about over 80 per day in your average lifetime. That's how many promises and declarations God has made. So when we ask the question, how do we cultivate this? You've got to go back and rehearse and read and meditate on and study and think about and know how many promises God has made to his people. Because the Spirit of God applies them on a daily basis in your life. He brings them to your mind when you're in the middle of something. So if you, if you cultivate faithfulness, it has to be grounded and rooted in the faithful, loyal love of God to do what he promises. He's the model of faithfulness and enduring um, faith, and, and he strengthens our faith by the promises and listen, you're going to be forced then to believe the promises like Abraham did, as Romans 4 says, in hope against hope, right? Circumstances don't fit. Situation can't be changed. Something in my life just doesn't seem like I have a solution. Any solution I think about, it's, it's not going to change anything. This is a worst case scenario for me. It's, I don't know how to get out of it. Nothing makes sense. And even when I read the scriptures and I see what God says that I'm to do in response to whatever's happening in front of me, it doesn't make logical sense that I would do this in response to this. And the writer, Paul, in Romans 4 says that in those kinds of circumstances, Abraham, he believed God without wavering. He grew strong in faith without wavering, knowing that God was able. So one of the ways we cultivate is to, is to know what he's promised. And then as we begin to apply it to our circumstances, you have to get away from your own solutions and believe God in hope against hope. When circumstances don't make sense, that's precisely when faith is at its zenith. You know, we've, we've built an entire system in, in recent years, because we're a, we're a, as Sproul called it, we're a sensual culture of Christianity. We, we, we want our senses to be satisfied with something. We live by what we sense is logical and good and right and best. And Puritans used to warn against that, as Obadiah Sedgwick's book on doubting tells us over and over again. If you live by your senses, and what makes logical sense to you rather than by faith, you're going to trip up constantly. So we cultivate faithfulness by realizing that when circumstances don't make sense and nothing seems like it's going to solve any problem that you have and the promise of God seems a bit obtuse, that's when, like Abraham, you entrust yourself fully to the promise in hope against hope, because then your faith grows strong by the work of the Holy Spirit. He begins to renew and deepen and strengthen and put cement around the footings of your belief in God. 
And he's the one then who's ruling your will and your motives and your thoughts. It's full entrustment, especially when you don't sense that, that this really is logical or makes sense. And everyone around you, even your friends might be saying, you're doing that, you're responding how to, uh, really? I mean, and you're gonna say, this is what the promise of God says. I remember when I was early, an early Christian and I'm raising kids and those little grommets, you know, we're having a tough time with them because we had four of them. And, and uh, yeah, Lance is going, four, big deal, I had eight. That's true, <laughs> you're a bigger man than I. <laughs> But with our four, we gave, they gave us a run for their money in the early years. Um, as a new parent, you don't know how to do that. And so my wife would often call. And we would be sitting on the phone lamenting, man, it just doesn't seem like it's working. But then we would remind ourselves, we said this often to one another when, when the other was at their weakest point. Look, all we have is what God has said. There's nothing else in the circumstances that are going to sweeten the deal for us as Richard Sibbs makes clear in his Puritan work on this. When nothing else is sweetening the action, sweetens the action, then faith is at its clearest and purest because you have to entrust yourself to only what God says and circumstances and sensations and experiences don't match up. So cultivating faith is entrustment at that level where you just step out knowing that God said there'll be a bridge. You can't see it. You can't feel it under your feet until you step out. There's no guarantee until you walk forward. When you walk forward, it's all there. So cultivating it means knowing the promises that are there. And then in those moments, in hope against hope, you entrust yourself. Entrust just means kind of like it does in First Peter 2. You place yourself at the complete disposal of God's purposes and his word and his will. Completely. You just abandon your own sense of things and you entrust yourself to the disposal of God, whatever he wants, whatever his word promised, even if you're waiting for a result. I used to, we used to say to one another, Louise and I, this is what the Bible says. It's all we have. What else do we need? We don't need circumstances to change. His promise shoots right through the middle of it because even if we're faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. He made promises. We claim those promises, not because we have to have them right now. We, we could go to our death and not realize some of them because in eternity we'll realize all of them. We're like... We're like the believers in Hebrews 11. They died without realizing the full extent of those promises because God had something bigger planned for a greater number of people to be brought in. But they believed anyway. And by that faith, man, they, they stood. So that's how it gets cultivated, right? On a practical level. Yeah, it's good. I no, I, I so appreciate <clears throat> what Jerry has taught us this morning, not only theologically and biblically, but practically. Um, it's so interesting to me too, Jerry, that the, the scenario in Hebrews 6 is that, <clears throat> as you rightly said, that when 
God sort of put that divine anesthetic on Abram so that he wouldn't, in one sense, be a part of the process. And the reason why he wouldn't be a part of going through with God in the cutting of the covenant was because God knew Abram would not be faithful because of his sinfulness. It's interesting when it does say in verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he, he referring to God, could swear by no one greater, since there isn't anyone greater than himself. It doesn't say he swore to himself. He swore by himself. And as you rightly said, the, the performance of it is the cutting of the covenant and the oath. The persons who made the covenant are two, God and himself. Because he made the swearing by himself. Now, there aren't two gods, but it's actually, you know, making the point so demonstratively mm. that since God is the only perfect being and is the only one who can fulfill his promise to his own oath, then he can only swear by himself. Everybody else is untrustworthy, unfaithful. So he knocks Abram out. Though Abram's a part of it because he was the one who cut the animals in half. So he's involved and God is making a promise to him. But since Abram will not ever fulfill his promise as God would, God walks through the animals by himself. But since a covenant is with two people, he swears by himself. And then the next phrase in verse 14 is saying. So it is God in his person and God in his word. God in his character, as you said, and then God in his word. And Hebrews 11 mentions Abraham more than any other person, maybe with a quibble of Moses at the beginning. But there are two or three references to Abraham as the pinnacle of the man of faith, as you quoted Romans 4. So it's just a rich, rich understanding of what you've provided for us this morning on how God is the only faithful one. And when it comes to a, an ancient treaty, an ancient ceremony, a swearing ceremony, there are only two persons who walk through the covenant. And since God couldn't find anybody else to make sure that that other person held up his end of the bargain, he swore by himself. So that it would be upheld. So that it would be upheld. Eternally. So. And held eternally. So not just that it would, we'd get there, but that we'd be there forever. Never failing again. The covenant. That's just rich. Thank you. Another way to cultivate faith. You know, to strengthen your faith. Just realizing how unfaithful we are and yet it never causes us to be lost I could not hold on to my salvation if I determined with all my might to do it I couldn't do it he has to hold me so 
That's phenomenal. All right, um, I'm going to get to class. Let's uh, bow. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us once again by your word and by our fleshing it out, thinking it through. Once again, your spirit is bringing conviction because so often we get discouraged. We start thinking things through on a horizontal level instead of realizing that at the heart of your trustworthiness, your faithfulness, is your character, which is immutable. It's as immutable as it is faithful and faithful as it is immutable. This is who you are. No wonder you had to make this on your own, by yourself, unilaterally, so that it would be permanent, eternal, and we would be able to take part in it. The same way you solved our problem, our sin problem, you orchestrated all the events, you had promised them, they unfolded exactly as you said, and at the proper time, your time, your sovereign ordained time, our Savior came and nothing would thwart our substitute going to the cross to pay for our sins because you had made that covenant and swore by yourself. May this be our encouragement, Lord. Help us to cultivate strong faith rooted in your faithfulness. And we ask that you'd help us to help each other. In Christ's name, amen.